With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. Engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and this is the season finale for season two of Truth and Justice. We have come a long way in the last year. The Smith County cases began with Kenny Snow, who led us to Ed Eights, and over the last year, we've gone from a case that was completely legally dead to an active case being represented by the Innocence Project of Texas and that now has a legitimate chance of exoneration through actual innocence. In today's episode, we'll hear from Ed's family and Ed himself about the impact of our crowdsourced investigation. We'll also hear from Ed's attorney, Allison Clayton of the Innocence Project of Texas. She'll update us on the status of Ed's case and talk about the effect Truth and Justice has had on the case, on Ed, and even on her as an attorney. And in the final segment of today's episode, I will present to all of you my final theory on the case. We have a lot of ground to cover today, and we're going to start at the beginning. question that Edward Eight's life has been changed over the last year. Aside from everything that's been done legally for him, the most immediate and meaningful change began with a phone call. Uh, actually, we were in vaca- on vacation. We were actually uh, in California for a basketball tournament for Zach. And um, she was actually in another room helping some ladies to do makeup or whatever. And she came down, she kind of pulled me to the side. She said, Mom, this man just called me. I was like, what a man? She said about dad. And I was like, well, so she was kind of emotional. And I was like, okay, well, I can't deal with that right now, you know. Um, and then we had Zach in the car, and, and uh, I said, I can't deal with that right now. But then when we let Zach out at the gym, we listened to some of the podcasts, and I was shocked. And my state of mind at that time was I didn't know what, um, I didn't know what to think about my marriage, about a situation. I was just in a, a world of unknown. Uh, yeah, I had filed for divorce, but I had never gone through with it because I did not want to divorce him. But on the other hand, I didn't know what the future held because I really didn't think he had a chance of getting out uh, because uh, he exhausted all his uh, whatever the appeals or habeas or whatever you want to call it. So I was really in a world of an unknown, just just dark, dark, dark. So once uh, I finally investigated who you were and I gave you a call and, and the first words out of your mouth was, I believe your husband is innocent. The answered prayer is what I would say it is. 
it was for me. And it was God telling me, this is the direction you were supposed to go go in all along. You're supposed to wait on your husband. You should believe in me. You should trust in me and know that I was going to work this out for you. Kim has told me that she was in absolute shock when she got that call. She didn't know who I was or if I was even the real deal. But the end of that second phone call was a powerful moment for both of us. No one other than family and friends had ever told her that they believed that Ed was innocent. But thank God you came into our lives. You reached out to my baby and now we are here. <laughs> Almost a year later, you know, but we are trucking along in the right direction. I spoke with Ed's daughter Kyra this week as well, and she has her own memory of that day when I cold called her. We were out of town at one of the basketball games, and when you called me, I, I, I don't really want to say I brushed it off at the same time I did, because I'm just like, you know, why is this man playing on my phone about this? You know, there's some serious. Yeah, I remember when you answered the phone, you kind of sounded like, who the hell is this guy? Yeah, that was my exact thought. I honestly didn't even know what a podcast was, and I. I want to say she didn't either. But we, like, you know, looked online and, you know, we saw, like, you had a Facebook page and Twitter and all that kind of stuff. And then it led us to, you know, the podcast and stuff like that. You know, that was about my dad. You had already spoken to him and everything. But when, you know, after, I mean, we did research, that, you know, that whole day after we had first talked to you. So by that night, I had listened to a lot of the episodes, you know. The first one, you actually had him on there with Kenny Snow and all the kind of stuff. So I was listening to like, I didn't go to bed until I finished it all about my dad. So I, we, we researched it. We, we were listening. <laughs> it happened when I was so young. And I don't want to say we were kind of like, move on because it's like it's something that was always there you know it's always a subject that's touchy but it's like we never really talk about it you know because it's like it leads to so many emotions when we talk about it but it's like I don't know I don't want to say we were moving on but I guess I'll say we really were we wouldn't speak on it really because I don't I didn't want to get my hopes up especially that early but it's hard for me not to get my hopes up so my hopes are high you know my faith got stronger like instantly I want to kind of feel like a wake-up call almost. That day is still burned into my memory as well. I remember being shocked that Kim and Kyra didn't seem thrilled to hear from me. I thought they would have been excited. But it's understandable that at some point you reach a place of acceptance. They were at a point where they had no other choice but to accept the fact that Ed was never coming home. He had exhausted all of his appeals, all of his habeas. There was no other end to this story then Ed was going to die in prison. They say that there are seven steps to grieving. In a way, I took Kim, Kyra, and Zach backward in the grieving process. Understanding that now makes their reaction to my call so much more understandable. They had gone through all of these stages of grief and had finally found a place of acceptance, which was necessary for them to go on about their lives. And basically, I told them to start the grieving process all over again. Because without grief, there's no hope. It's also important for us to understand how all of this has affected Ed. We always talk about all the good that this has done for him. But Ed has also grieved. He's grieved for the loss of his freedom. He's grieved for the loss of his future. He has grieved because he missed the birth of his son and the death of his beloved grandmother. He's grieved for his marriage and he's grieved for the time missed watching his children grow up. There came a point when Ed had to accept the fact that he would surely die behind those prison walls. And without accepting that, every day would be torture for Ed. He had resigned himself to making the best out of the life that he had. Remember when Ed told us that he crumbled up and threw away the first letter that I ever sent to him? It wasn't until I sent a second letter that he decided to finally write me back. It's not easy to let your guard down. Hope for Ed also means vulnerability. 
Sometimes it's easier to accept your circumstance than to go through the pain of hoping for something better. It took a lot for me to get Ed to break down those walls. It took a lot to get him to trust me. And it took months to bring Ed to the point where he was willing to risk hope. Ed is in an extremely vulnerable place right now. Something as simple as a paperwork mix-up can feel like a rug being ripped out from underneath him. Okay. So, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been sweating that for a month? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, Bob, it don't take much, you know what I mean? It don't take too much to throw some doubt on me. It don't take much at all. But I feel better now you don't explain it to me. I felt horrible after this exchange. You can hear me laughing it off at the beginning. It was simple to me, just a little clerical error. It hadn't even occurred to me how terrifying even the little things can be when it's your life that's floating in the balance. This hasn't been all roses for Ed. It's been an extremely difficult journey. And a lot of the time, I'm the one to blame for that. We don't always think about how the things that we say will be received by others. Hang in there. It's going to be okay. I understand. For us, these are words of encouragement. But for the man who has lost everything, they can feel like a knife being twisted through your heart. It's easy for someone that's not in your shoes to tell you to keep the faith. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, we're not we're not the ones that are sitting in prison for eighteen years telling out here telling you just buck up, buddy. <laughs> exactly. And Kelly, you know, sometimes it, that's sometimes a trigger too, you know. It triggers me sometimes too, you know. Right. First thing, you know, don't, don't worry about it, you know, just suck it up, keep your head up and it's gonna be all right. And I mean that that's that's triggered me I don't know how many times. You know, as much as I try to understand and Kim tries to understand and Allison tries to understand, I know that there's no way anybody can really understand unless they're you. Right. I mean, that's what I used to kind of get mad at Kim because she told me, she always said, you know, I, I understand. I know what you're going through, but, you know, nobody does. You can't. I'm not, I'm not mad at you, you know, for that, but, you know, I'm just, I just don't want, don't want to hear it. You know what I mean? I couldn't imagine some being in there and then somebody telling me that I understand. I mean, a lot of times that that blows the shit out of me. Yeah, I'm sure. And, and, and you you probably get it a lot now with all these people writing you letters. Or do you all get, the time. Yeah. All uh, the time. Yeah, people just trying to be nice, but they're they're really not getting what they're what they're saying. But you know, I don't, I don't, I don't get upset at them. You know, I just, I write them back, and you know, and I don't, I try not to, you know, go too, go, go into too many areas where they'll come back like this, you know. Right, like right. They ask, they ask me something. I try to answer the questions, you know, and the best I can, you know, and just let them know I, I appreciate them writing me, you know, and whatever they do for me. If some of them send me money, I appreciate that. You know, a lot of people send, they still send stamps, and I have to send those back. Oh, right. Side note, don't set Ed stamps, or any inmate for that matter. They're not allowed to receive them, and they have to actually buy stamps to mail your stamps back to you. That's just one of the joys of living in prison. Logic doesn't always fit into the equation. This process has certainly been a struggle for Ed and his family, but there is no question that the struggle has been worth it. We have done something here that has never been done before. We have invited thousands of people to actively participate in this investigation. Other podcasts have done something similar, but nothing quite compares to what we have accomplished. All of us, working together as one seamless unit. The difference is that we have conducted this investigation in real time. Most other podcasts of this nature pre-research and pre-produce their seasons. By the time you're hearing about the case, the investigation is practically over. Granted, this leads to a more organized, higher-quality production, but what we are doing here is true crowdsourcing in real time, and the results I've have been incredible. I doubted his innocence, never, never, never. But the fact that there was somebody believing him, believing in his innocence, it, it's one thing if I believe it, you know. But just like you in court, you have to, you have to, you know, prove to a jury that he's innocent. But we had somebody like you 
believing in him. And you basically tore the case apart and, and you figured it out. And it didn't take you a long time to figure it out. And it's baffling that nobody could figure this out. I'm not even going to say they couldn't figure it out. They didn't figure it out. So it was just that little piece of hope. By putting all of our heads together, we have been able to breathe new life into a case that was otherwise legally dead. And please understand that this is not a case of me patting myself on the back. That's not it at all. I am genuinely moved by how so many of you have given your time, your skills, your money, and your expertise to make all of this happen. What we have done here is truly revolutionary. And I believe that it is changing the way that even attorneys look at the way the criminal justice system operates. Ed and his family all feel extremely blessed to one of these attorneys who has been fighting for them. Allison Clayton has been working tirelessly on Ed's case for over eight months now, and her efforts have not gone unnoticed. Allison is the sweetest attorney I have ever met. I love Allison, and I thank her so much for diligently working on Ed's case. Her and her students, we love them all. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you, Allison. And team. I've watched Allison throughout the past eight months fiercely engage in Ed's case, but I've also seen her view on working with a podcaster and thousands of strangers on the case transform in front of my eyes as we've drawn closer to the conclusion. Here's Allison Clayton talking about the Truth and Justice effect. Working with the Truth and Justice Army has been an incredible and educational experience for me. The resources brought by your audience to the case have just been amazing. You know, if, if we need somebody to enhance a photo or to tell us about how a test works or to get a car, it's incredible that you can just say it and it's done. That You have someone out there who can be responsive to your needs in the investigation. It is a resource unlike any I have ever dealt with, and it is awesome to have, but it's also great to see the impact that it has on my client. I have so many clients who have been forgotten. You know, they've been put in prison for the rest of their lives, and at their own request or just because it happens, their families move on. They abandon them and they forget them. And these people don't have any visitors for years and years. They've just been completely forgotten. And it's difficult in those cases because you feel like you're dealing with somebody who is just broken. But this case, with the Truth and Justice audience, I have a client who I truly believe has found at least reassurance, camaraderie, friendship that he would not have had without the Truth and Justice podcast. And I wish all of my clients could have it, but I'm so thrilled that Ed can get it because he is truly changed from the man that I sat down across from when I first came on the case to the man I sit down across from now. And I have unwavering certainty, the knowledge that that is from truth and justice and truth and justice alone. But it's also been very impactful on me personally as an attorney, because, you know, attorneys have a very, we're taught to have kind of a narrow mindset. You know, we live in our world. Our world consists of other attorneys, police officers experts in certain scientific areas. Our world, in all honesty, does not usually consist of pretty much anybody who's going to tune in and listen to a podcast. And that's how I was taught, that we exclude those people. And not even that we exclude those people, but that those people just aren't really interested in what we're doing. 
through my work with Truth and Justice, I have really had a change in my thinking. And I think that the whole idea of crowdsourcing is completely revolutionary. To me, at least. Maybe I'm just way behind the curve on this, but this has been incredibly transformative for me as an attorney. I see the power in numbers, and I see that there are people out there who are willing to help for no reason other than they have a moral conviction that it's the right thing to do, and they want to do something about it. And we're dealing with an area of law where day in and day out, it's just, you know, Innocence Project of Texas or me as an attorney struggling to get evidence, to find experts, and we do it on a shoestring budget or for no pay at all. We do it, a lot of times I do it out of my own pocket. Uh, Not too much because I can't really afford a lot, but, you know, you do what you can do. But to have the resource that I now see is out there with crowdsourcing, I really, it has changed my entire perspective on things. You know, when I very first came in, I was, you know, I remember laughing and saying, you know, this is definitely a unique thing. We've never had a case brought to us before by a podcaster out of Michigan. But I got to say, it has been been incredible for the impact that it's had on the case. It has been wonderful to see the positive impact it has had on my client. And it has been surprisingly powerful for me as an attorney in my craft, in my field, and the thing that I have dedicated my life to. So I'm thankful. I'm immensely thankful. And in fact, this experience has been so transformative for me that I have gone from an attorney who was reluctant to let outsiders have any impact on a case on my client or on myself to now being an attorney who looks forward to and sincerely hopes for help from truth and justice in future cases. Because I I see the power of having a, a lot of people helping out with the case, and I see that there are people like that out there. And I know that it can help me in future cases. I know that it can help us get wrongly convicted people exonerated. And I'm really looking forward to continuing our work with truth and justice. And I hope we can get a lot of people exonerated together. And I believe we can. And that's the reason why the next case that you're going to be developing, that you're going to be working on, is an Innocence Project of Texas case. The winds of change are officially blowing through the criminal justice system. I'm now getting packages and letters from lawyers asking for your help, you being the Truth and Justice audience. This change is more significant than you may realize. As you just heard Allison explain, lawyers are taught to keep information on their cases close to the chest. They're taught not to talk to the media and certainly not ask for the help of thousands of strangers. But in the last year, we have went from begging lawyers to take our cases to lawyers actually seeking us to help with their own. And because of this, next week we will be launching Season 3 of Truth and Justice with a brand new case that was brought to us by Allison. This is an Innocence Project of Texas case. Allison and her team have reviewed the case and believe very strongly in their client's innocence. But in order to prove Jesse's actual innocence, They're going to need your help. The work that Allison has done in this case has been incredible, and she's just getting started. After the break, we'll hear more from her about what to expect in Ed's case moving forward. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Edward Eight's case has been floating through the Texas criminal justice system for over two decades now. In 1993, he was arrested and put into the Smith County Jail. In 1994, he bonded out, where he remained out in the free world until his trial in 1996. That first trial ended in a mistrial, and Ed was able to go back home. A year later, in 1997, his bond was revoked, and he went back to the Smith County Jail. Shortly thereafter, he was able to bond out again, and in 1998, he had his second trial, which resulted in his conviction and a sentence of 99 years in prison. Ed quickly exhausted all of his direct appeals, and in 2010, he took his one bite at the apple with his one and only allowable habeas claim. In his 2010 hearing, Ed's request for a new trial was denied, and his case was deemed dead unless new evidence was discovered, and that's where it's been sitting ever since. I don't need to remind you all the journey that we've all traveled together over this last year. You were here, you lived it with me, and you're still living it. But after all of our combined efforts, we have reached a point now where it's time to pass the baton. The investigation into Ed's case and our mission of solving the murder of Elnora Griffin has reached the point where we, as investigators, can go no further. We've uncovered a lot of new evidence, developed solid theories on the case, and we have determined what needs to be scientifically tested in order to prove or disprove our theories. And it's now time to unleash the hounds. I am thrilled and excited to pass the baton onto Allison Clayton of the Innocence Project of Texas and her team. It's time to start the fight. Now that we've reached the point where we are passing the baton, so to speak, in this case, from the investigative side onto you, what do you see happening next in Ed's case? What's your plan? The first thing we're going to do is we have one more meeting in Smith County to verify all of the evidence that the sheriff's office has. As soon as we have a full understanding of the evidence that's at the sheriff's department, then we can go ahead and start filing our motions. The first motion that we will likely be filing is going to be a motion for DNA testing. There are some pieces of evidence that I think, I hope, will be suitable for DNA testing, and we're going to file a motion to have that testing done. Now, Matt Bingham has promised me that, you know, I say I'm filing these motions, but you can have agreed motions. And Matt told me before that he's not going to oppose any of our motions. And I think that he is interested, I hope that he's interested in the truth just as much as I am. And if those DNA tests come back favorable to Ed, then I think he's going to be interested in knowing that as well. So we'll be filing those motions, but hopefully they will not be opposed motions. And after the results of that DNA testing comes back, then we'll just have to go from there. The end result of everything is going to be us filing a claim that Ed is actually innocent and seeking his exoneration in the Texas courts. I know there could be a wide range here, but do you have any anticipation of what the time frame will be before we actually get to the point where we're ready to file a claim of actual innocence? That depends on how long the testing takes, honestly, and it also depends on whether or not Smith County plans on fighting us, if they plan on opposing us, which I don't anticipate that they will, but if they do, then that's going to delay the process a good deal, because then we're going to have to litigate it out. If the Smith County DA's office opposes us, then we probably won't have much movement in the case until maybe the fall or winter of uh, 2017. If they don't oppose us, then we could hopefully get the retesting and that DNA done in early to, to mid-spring of 2017. And then just depending on, on a, how much DNA testing is done, how long all of that takes, whatever labs it is we end up sending them to, all that kind of stuff can impact the timeline. But that's going to be the main factor is whether or not the, the DA's office oppose us on the motion. If the test results come back and they're not exculpatory, so whether there's some of the DNA is, is inconclusive or perhaps it comes back and it matches some, someone that doesn't help us or there's not enough of a sample left to test. So let's just say if we were to test all the DNA and just come up blank, 
do you still feel, even without the DNA, that we have enough evidence to still file a claim of actual innocence, even without the DNA? First of all, in my mind, there is no way that DNA is coming back to Ed. I think the only way the DNA does not help us is if the testing on it is inconclusive or if the material itself is untestable. And if that happens, that kind of neutral result does not actively benefit us, then we, we don't really have much to play with there. But in my mind, Ed's case for innocence is very, very strong. So you did our first interview on the show shortly after you were assigned Ed's case last June. And in that interview, you were very careful to say that you had been assigned Ed's case and not that you were his attorney. And you told me that that was because at that point, you were merely investigating Ed's case to determine whether he had a viable case and whether he was actually innocent. After working on the case for the last eight months, how do you feel about Ed's case now? It didn't take eight months to decide to formally represent Ed. After I got into the case and I started investigating it and I started speaking with you about it and looking at everything that you and your listeners had found in the case and all the work that you've done in the case, it was quickly apparent to me that Ed is an innocent man who's been wrongly convicted. And so I don't know exactly when now. It was probably back in August. We decided to formally represent Ed. And I've entered notices of representation with the Smith County District Attorney's Office. And I am formally representing Ed. He is now formally my client in full. And as my client, I am 100% devoted to Ed, to his case. I am absolutely fighting with everything I have for Ed. And I will do everything I can for him to get him exonerated and to get him home. As we approach the finish line in Ed's case, emotions are high. I find myself losing sleep most nights, thinking about Ed and his family. I'm excited, I'm nervous, and everything in between. I've talked on the phone this week with just about everyone from Ed's family. Kyra asked for an opportunity to address all of you in the audience. So I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, my mom's my family. Thank you, thank you, thank you. They might not know what they've done, but they have made a big difference in our life. My hopes are high, my faith is strong, and I know my daddy is coming home. I also spoke with Ed's brother, Kelvin, today, and he also asked to speak directly to all of you. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you to our Lord and Savior, because without him, we're nobody. And thank you, Bob, for your radio show, Truth and Justice. Thank you for the Innocence, Innocence Project and his lawyers and everybody that's so supportive. I want to thank you so much because a lot of this is going on not only in the deep south, East Texas, but all over. And it needs to be brought to attention. I mean, if you're wrong, you're wrong. And my brother was wrongfully convicted. And I just hope and pray that 2017 is his year where he gets out, touches the ground, so he can visit back with his family, friends, as well as his wife and his two kids, because they have been raised without their father. I'm just so happy and just elated. I've been praying every day, been sending letters, been going to go visit my brother, and just hoping everything just works out. Bob, you guys, and the Innocence Project, you guys are heaven-sent angels. I just want to tell you, just thank you so much, because without y'all, my brother wouldn't even have a chance. And thank y'all for standing up, believing in what's right, even though it might ruffle some feathers, but right is only right. And I just want to thank you so much for what y'all are doing and keep doing what you're doing and keep freeing these innocent people out here that are wrongfully convicted. I know that my brother's coming home. 2017, I'll finally get a chance to hug my brother outside those prison walls, and we're going to have a ball. Can't wait to see him when he come home, Edward. Love you. And of course, Kim wanted to address all of you as well. Truth and Justice Army, where will we be without you guys? I would hate to think about it. I thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for all of the heartfelt wishes. 
all of the love from all over the world. Um, the uh, when we came together for the um, what was that the meetup, the love and the hugs and the just the the atmosphere of love and acceptance and wanting to help. You guys don't even know what that meant to us as a family. Uh, we love you guys so much. Thank you for being a part of our lives. Please don't forget about us. Please continue to say those prayers. They are working. Uh, we love you, and you will always, always be in our minds, our thoughts, and our hearts. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Kim also asked me to send a message to Ed. Now, this may seem a little odd. She gets to see Ed almost every week and talks to him on the phone often. But she asked me to let her send him a message on the show that he can read in the transcripts. Edward, I love you. Our last visit was so emotional and it was great. It was perfect. It was just the two of us. I really enjoyed that moment. I can't wait to have those moments outside of the prison wall. I just can't wait to hold you in my arms and you hold me. I cannot wait for you to come home. And I know, baby, you are coming home. You are coming. I cannot wait. I love you. I love you. I love you. Probably the most emotional conversation that I've had all week was with Ed's mother. I do want to thank all of you. And I wish I could thank y'all personally with one of my freshly baked cakes. But it probably won't be big enough because it was so many of y'all helping us. But, you know, we just couldn't even count. But I do want you to know that I appreciate everything that you did. And I want to reiterate this statement. I know my baby is coming home. Now, when I say I think my son is coming home, can you say the same thing to me? Yes, absolutely. I believe he's coming home. We're going to do everything in our power to make that happen. Thank you. You're welcome. There were a lot of tears shed on both ends of that phone call. At the end of the day, Margie asked me to make her a promise. And Margie, here is my promise to you. I promise that I will never stop fighting for Ed to come home. I will never forget about him or any of you. All of you. Ed, Kim, Kyra, Zach, Kelvin, and Margie have forever changed my life. And no matter how long it takes, I will never give up on my friend, Edward Ates. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. And now we're finally at the segment of the show where I answer the question that you've all been asking me. Together, we have spent thousands of hours investigating this case. I've made multiple trips to Texas. I've interviewed witnesses. I've read every document. And after all of that, I finally have what I believe to be a pretty solid theory on the case. Now, before I explain my theory, I want to make something crystal clear. What I'm about to tell you is simply my own personal theory. This is by no means an accusation against anyone. In no way am I saying that what I'm about to tell you is exactly what happened. It is simply my personal theory. At the very beginning of this investigation, my gut was telling me that Francis Johnson was the one responsible for Elnora's murder, and I held on to this theory for a long time. But as time went on, I moved away from Francis. 
There were times when I wondered about Lionel Williams and even Ed's own mother, Margie. But at the end of the day, every one of those theories had pieces of evidence that conflicted with them. And every scenario that I could come up with that involved them had flaws. And as I've told you from the very beginning, my methodology to investigating this case or any other case is to examine the evidence, develop a theory, and go back to the evidence to either prove or disprove. And after cycling through this process many, many times over the last year, I believe that I have a scenario that fits all of the evidence, so let's start with the process of getting there. First of all, I looked at the crime scene. We have a light left on outside. We have no signs of forced entry. And we have a killer who made a clear attempt to conceal the crime scene and temporarily avoid Elnora being found. All of these items indicate that the killer not only has a personal relationship to Elnora, but that relationship is known and that their presence in the trailer could be expected by other people. Then we have the way that Elnora herself was found. Completely nude and badly beaten. Add to that the fact that there was a meal on the stove and one plate and set of silverware soaking in the sink. From what everyone who knew Elnora has told me, it would be completely out of character for her to leave that dish in the sink for hours and hours after she ate dinner. When we add all of this together and compare it to the information that we have about known suspects, I believe that it is extremely likely that Leonard Mosley did indeed show up to Elnora Griffin's house that night and eat that meal. We can pile onto that theory with the message on the answering machine, Leonard's own statements about his routine about going over there on Thursday nights, his inconsistent story about why he didn't go there that night and what time he left his home the next morning. To continue to pile on, we consider Leonard's statements that on those nights, those Thursday nights when he would come over, that he and Elnora would have sex. And again, she was found completely nude. So to build the foundation of my theory, I believe that at a minimum, Leonard Mosley was there in the trailer when Elnora was killed. But there are other elements of the crime scene that don't add up to Leonard acting alone. There are elements of the scene that seem to indicate that after the murder, things were happening at opposite ends of the trailer. We have a curtain tie in the bedroom, but the curtain found at the other end of the house in the laundry room. We have the hammer most likely used to nail the towel up to the window found on the west end of the trailer in the laundry room, and it appears that the towel that was actually used was pulled out of the bathroom on the east end of the trailer in the master bath. We also have to consider the fact that the phone was ripped off of the kitchen wall and taken into the bedroom. Furthermore, we have to consider motive. If I'm right, and Leonard Mosley did show up at Elnora's house that night, he ate a meal, and they had sex, we have to wonder what would trigger him from having sex to immediately setting his mind on murder. It's not that that's impossible, but it doesn't quite fit with the evidence. What does fit with the evidence is that a second person came into that trailer that night. Elnora's injuries indicate that her murderer was full of rage. I believe that the person that killed her despised her. And in that moment, that emotional moment, was filled with absolute rage. And there's only one person that could fit that description. Turning to our other suspects, we're not sure at this point exactly how these exchanges were happening, but we do know that Elnora and Angela Walker were talking on the phone. We know at least that some woman was calling Elnora harassing her. We know that Elnora had broken it off with Leonard because he had moved Angela back into his apartment. We know that the Friday night before the murder, Elnora had called Leonard early in the morning. And Leonard says that during that conversation, he told her that he was going to take care of the situation and that they were going to get back together again. We also know that Leonard and Angela's baby did not live with them at the time, which means that if Leonard wasn't there, Angela was home alone, with no one to verify where she did go or didn't go. And when we move back to motive, Angela Walker is the only person in this entire story that seems to have a motive that fits the crime. And as we look closer at Angela, we see ever-changing stories. She avoided going to give a statement to the police. She avoided giving any statements to the investigators. 
And she even went into court and told a story about how she had seen Ed crouching behind a car at Elnora's trailer that night. But she's also on record saying that she has no idea where Elnora lived. When she spoke with me, she told me that she knew that there were fingernail scratches on Elnora's body, and she believed that it must have been Ed's mother, Margie, who caused those scratches. But when I asked her if she knew about the cause of death, she immediately shut down the conversation and hasn't spoken to me since. These things that I just discussed are the foundation to the theory that I'm about to give you. My theory on the case is this. I believe that on Thursday night, July 22, 1993, Elnora cooked a meal for Leonard Mosley. And when Leonard got off of work, he went to her house as planned. I believe that he went in, he sat down in the kitchen, he ate his meal, and then he and Elnora retired to the bedroom to have sex. I believe that either during the course of the sex or directly after, Angela Walker barged in the back door. I believe that Angela Walker is the one who ripped the phone off the wall and went back to the master bedroom to confront Leonard and Elnora. I think that a fight ensued, and Angela began to choke Elnora. Elnora was choked to the point of the blood vessels rupturing in her eyes and even defecation. I believe that Elnora was able to escape Angela's grasp because Leonard tried to help her. I believe that once she escaped her grasp, she ran to the front door to try to escape. But she was caught again, ripping the curtain off of the front door. At this point, for what was surely only seconds, but must have felt like hours, chaos was ensuing in that living room. Elnora was trying to get away, Angela was attacking Elnora, and Leonard was trying to break it up. I believe that since Elnora was nude, she grabbed a pillow off of the couch to try and cover her naked body. And I believe that it was that tiny distraction that gave Angela Walker the upper hand to end Elnora's life with a slit to the throat with a knife. As my theory goes on, once Elnora passed, Leonard and Angela had to figure out what to do next. And I believe that their plan was to give themselves as much time as possible before anybody found Elnora so that they could get their story straight and dispose of any evidence. They nailed a towel to the door window, they shut the lights off, and locked the doors, and exited out the back door. I don't believe that anyone actually drove Elnora's car. I think most likely what happened was that Leonard used the keys to put the car into neutral and quietly pushed the car forward where it couldn't be seen from the road. I believe those keys were part of the evidence that Leonard and Angela needed time to get rid of. I believe that this theory is supported by all of the evidence in the crime scene. The scratch marks on Elnora's back. The fingernail chip found on her buttock. The chairs positioned at the dining room table. And furthermore, the discrepancies between Leonard and Angela's testimonies. And at the end of the day, that's it. I believe that the key to this mystery is the simple answer that's been staring us in the face right from the start. Elnora was expecting a routine visit from her boyfriend that night. He was supposed to be there, and the next day she's found dead. In my opinion, Leonard Mosley should have been the prime suspect from day one. And as of today, he and Angela Walker continue to be my prime suspects. As time moves on, I will be continuing to investigate Ed's case, albeit behind the scenes at this point. Hopefully soon, the results of Allison's testing will be in, and we will finally know, once and for all, who killed Elnora Griffin. But until then, I can't think of anything more appropriate than ending this season with a final message to all of you from the man that I've grown to love like a brother, Ed Aids. You know, Bob, I truly believe that I'm going to be exonerated and I'm going home to my family. And I appreciate everything that you're doing to help me, you, Mike, Allison, and the uh, Texas Tech Innocence Project. You know, I'm, 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 I'm optimistic. You know, I'm nervous, but I'm still happy. When all you need a warm embrace is cold out there, alone. You miss the ones you call your own, and.
Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. And the song that you just heard in closing was written by a listener, Jennifer Crouch and Steve Nalbert, and recorded by Jennifer herself. You can get more from Jennifer at jennifercrouchmusic.com. All of the other music for the show was created by Shane Yoder. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Mueller, and Sarah Hoyt. And also, as this season comes to an end, I want to thank all of you one more time for all of your help and all of your support in every way that you've given it. There will be one more episode for Season 2, and that will be the Episode 255 follow-up. We'll be opening up the phone lines, and we hope that a lot of you will give us a call this Wednesday, February 22nd, at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for the Friday follow-up. Call in with your questions, your thoughts, your theories, and your ideas. The follow-up episode will air next Friday, and that will be the conclusion of Season 2. Also, I have a special announcement. On Wednesday of this week, the 22nd of February, I'll be releasing a special bonus episode. It's not about Ed's case. The content is a surprise, but look for a bonus episode this Wednesday at 6 p.m. And I look forward to working with all of you again when Season 3 launches next Sunday. Until then, however you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.